I anticipate that this might be a difficult airway, so why don't we get the Sugamidex available and ready to go? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Crit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a current PICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a Peds ICU fellow at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Crit Podcast? Yes. Pete's Crit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators across the world to create blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to create a space to further add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out. We will be excited to hear from you. Now, Zach, who are we talking with today? We're excited to have Gina Patel and Alyssa Stoner back on the show. Dr. Alyssa Stoner is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine, and is a pediatric intensivist at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Yes, and Dr. Gina Patel also works at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. She's a second year PCCM fellow. Now, in these episodes, we're talking about the specific medications required for intubation. And part three is a deep dive on neuromuscular blockade, and we review some typical medication combinations for common clinical scenarios. Yes. I loved their direct comparison of vecuronium, rocuronium, and succinylcholine, but there's a bunch of stuff in here. Let's get to the episode. The last kind of category that we need to cover really is the neuromuscular blockade. When you think about these drugs, you have kind of two specific categories. You have the depolarizing and non-depolarizing medications. So what approach do we kind of utilize or what approach have you been comfortable with utilizing um, when it comes to neuromuscular blockade? Well, it's typically comes down to between becuronium and rocuronium, which are your two non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade. You're going to see succinylcholine used a lot in the operating rooms with anesthesia and maybe even in the ED. We can use it in the ICU just with the side effect profile. We just tend to lean towards using rock or vec. And rocuronium tends to be shorter acting. Vecuronium needs to be reconstituted. So it needs, it takes a little bit longer to get prepared before you can administer it to the patient. And in terms of rocuronium, it's shorter acting than the VEC. So if you run into the situation where you cannot ventilate and oxygenate the patient and you lose the airway, the rocuronium is going to be metabolized out of the system a lot quicker than vecuronium, which will last up to 45 minutes to an hour. So that's why we tend to lean towards rocuronium. And it takes about like a minute for both of them to be effective. So I know Alyssa had mentioned earlier is when you're giving your sedative medication and then you give your paralytic, you want to continue to bag mass ventilate until the paralytic is truly effective. And that's usually about around the minute mark. So about 45 seconds after the paralytic is given is when I start getting my blade ready and start inserting it into the mouth. So I know that the vocal cords will be nice and open by the time I get to the glottic opening. Nice. That's for a delayed sequence intubation, right? Because for RSI, you wouldn't bag. Yes. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. Hearing what you're saying, when I think about neuromuscular blockade, think about depolarizing or non-depolarizing and depolarizing just being succinylcholine and those non-depolarizing being rocuronium and vecuronium, the ones that we commonly use with a lean towards rocuronium, we want something a little bit shorter acting as compared to vecuronium. 
you want to get into those side effects of succinylcholine and, and why we tend to not use those in the ICU? So succinylcholine really has been shown to have a multitude of side effects. So one of them is an increase in potassium, and that is related to the muscle fasciculations that the patient experiences. They can also, there's a high incidence of developing malignant hyperthermia in a subset of population that has that preponderance. So they typically have that genetic preponderance that they can develop it as well. In addition, you can have an increase in ICP and increased in ocular pressures. And there's a whole slew of other side effects associated with succinylcholine, but those are kind of the major ones that I can come up with off the top of my head. What's really nice about succinylcholine and the reason why many people choose to utilize it is how quick onset it is and how quick offset it is. So in this particular instance, you're able to provide paralytic to the patient. And if you were unsuccessful at achieving intubation, then the paralytic is going to wear off quickly and the patient's going to resume spontaneous respiration. Whereas in the setting of rocuronium, it's a matter of, you know, 15 minutes to 30 minutes before it's going to wear off. And so if you can't support them through that, it's you're going to be in big trouble. What is really nice, though, that has come along is a medication called Sugamidex, which is a reversal agent, which can then quickly reverse the paralytic that you provide to the patient. So now that we have Sugamidex available to us, kind of the use of succinylcholine has become less favorable because we have a very quick and effective way to reverse the paralytic with the Sugamidex. And so people are more likely and willing to use rocuronium with the idea that if they can't get the airway Way, then they can just get the Sugamidex. And we do have that available to us within the ICU, but it's really very available in EDs as well as operating rooms. Oh, wow. That's great. Almost like a airway med that you would have on hand. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly in those difficult airway settings, um, it's very important, you know, to have that as an option because you can say, well, I'm going to paralyze because I want to get the best view. I anticipate that this might be a difficult airway. So why don't we get the Sugamidex available and ready to go? So if I can't get the airway, we can reverse them. And do you find it relatively effective? Yes, incredibly effective. That's reassuring. (laughs) Yes, It works within minutes. I will say the caveat with Sugamidex is that it can last in your system for 24 hours. So this shouldn't be a concern as to not giving it. If you need to give it, you should because patient safety is obviously number one. So if you are unable to protect the patient's airway and you need to reverse their paralytic, do so. But keep in mind that if you had to re-paralyze them, they may need additional doses and they might not be able to be effectively paralyzed because the Sugamidex can be in their system for about 24 hours after. Interesting. Would that be a relative indication to try something like succinylcholine on your next attempt? I think it's still going to get bound by the Sugamidex, so it probably wouldn't matter either way. So, but I, I get what you're saying. I think, but I think you're still going to be stuck in that situation where you're probably going to have to give bigger doses. And I think eventually, the way Sugamidex works is it's kind of like it's like a sink, and so it like binds up all of the sites. And so basically, you just have to overcome everything that's available in the system. So you can use whatever paralytic agent you want. You're just probably going to have to dose them at a much more aggressive dosing than you would previously. Interesting. All right. So for Vecurodium, it's the longer acting. Vecurodium mm-hmm. is your short acting and sucks is your very short acting, but it's the depolarizing one. Exactly. 
And we're not going to give it by itself. We're going to give analgesia and sedation as well. <laughs> yeah. Never, yes. never by themselves. Never by themselves. So then the last kind of component that I wanted to mention is just some typical combinations that you might utilize in various different clinical settings. And so in a patient with hypoxic respiratory failure, really an optimal medication regimen would be the fentanyl, midazolam, rocuronium approach. If you have a patient who's septic, also using kind of that fentanyl, midazolam, perhaps maybe a lower dose of the midazolam with the rocuronium. And then as Gina had alluded to in several of the conversations, there are changes that happen from your cardiopulmonary interactions when you go from negative intrathoracic pressure to positive intrathoracic pressure, and it can be exaggerated when you have inadequate preload, particularly in somebody who has sepsis, for example and may have kind of the risk of being hypotensive, but they're not quite there yet. So as you're intubating that population, being considered of having fluid available and perhaps giving them a fluid bolus even while you're intubating them might be beneficial. For somebody who has concerns for increased intracranial pressure, we had mentioned consideration of lidocaine as a pretreatment. So considerations of pretreatment with lidocaine and then the use of Atomidate and Rocuronium is a great combination. The other approach would perhaps be the lidocaine, fentanyl, midazolam, and rocuronium. And then difficult airway is something that we have created a process for within our ICU. And it was developed by our pediatric anesthesiologist, pediatric intensivist, boarded individual who really used the approach of using kind of a combination of propofol and dexmedetomidine. So dexmedetomidine is a medication that we didn't even cover in this scenario. This might be an option where you would load them with both propofol and dexmedetomidine and then run infusions of those two medications, and then you would not utilize the paralytic until after you intubate them. And so this is kind of a scenario in which you might reach out to your anesthesia colleagues or your ENT colleagues, and they kind of will help titrate those medications as well. I'm gathering that you choose something like propofol and dexmedetomidine for these typical airways because they're relatively quick on and quick off. Yes, quick on, quick off, and then they maintain their spontaneous respiratory drive. With propofol, you can dose them enough to make them apneic. And so if you get to a point where you feel like you have great visualization of their airway, they're adequately sedated, and you feel like you could get the breathing tube out, you can kind of induce that apnea with an additional dose of the propofol Mm. and be able to get the breathing tube in. So you're starting it like these are your sedation drips and you can ramp up a little bit and then give an additional bolus right before your intubation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the last kind of one that, you know, I have encountered is in a setting of kind of acute pulmonary edema, particularly after an obstructive process. You know, somebody who has maybe just gotten extubated and they have some upper airway obstruction. The approach that I have taken is using just straightforward propofol where you get them adequately sedated and then you paralyze them right as you're putting the breathing tube in or right before you put the breathing tube in. So just kind of a propofol paralytic combination. And what makes you not choose any kind of analgesia for that patient? 
just the loss of the respiratory drive. So propofol will give you some coverage, but doesn't give you like massive coverage. And so that's why we try to avoid just the straightforward propofol, but it gives you the opportunity to have spontaneous respiration. Sometimes when you have pulmonary edema and you have this kind of post-obstructive process, as you paralyze them, what can happen is you get flooding of the pulmonary edema into the airway. The idea is to be able to utilize the propofol while maintaining some spontaneous spontaneous respiration to kind of keep the secretions down in the airway. Oftentimes in that situation, you'll want to be extra prepared with your suction equipment, all of those types of items. But if you can be thoughtful about which drugs you choose, you can hopefully get the airway secured without having to deal with a lot of secretions. But that's not always the case. I would imagine the disadvantage of using ketamine in this situation is with increased secretions. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. I want to circle back maybe to sepsis. We mentioned that fentanyl and, and, and midazolam might, with combination with a neuromuscular blockade, might be a reasonable alternative. Mm-hmm. Maybe in prior shot guidelines, they recommended ketamine and fentanyl plus neuromuscular blockade. Kind of how do you work in ketamine into the management of the septic patient? That is a great option, and I think it's definitely something that you can utilize. Although I would be cognizant that you sometimes may not know how sick and how long these patients have been sick for. And so understanding that when you use ketamine, you could potentially put them at risk for having cardiovascular collapse in that setting. So if you're confident that, oh yes, this kid has only really been sick for the last 24 hours and they're not catecholamine deplete, then it's a great option. Oftentimes I feel like some of the septic kids that we tend to see in the ICU very acutely are those kids who have been lingering and have been sick for like, oh, four or five days and they went to multiple providers and you kind of don't understand exactly where their catechol reserves lie. And so that's what makes me a little bit leery about using ketamine in the setting of septic. That makes sense. Come to think of, I've never actually seen ketamine given to the younger children. Is there a particular age that you would not give ketamine to? I don't think so. I'm trying to think like, what's the youngest age that I've given ketamine to? I've never really given it to a neonate. Those kids in the first, you know, month of life, I've never, I personally have never administered ketamine to, but I certainly have used it in the infant population, particularly in some of our cardiac kids for various reasons. I don't necessarily have a cutoff as to when I would use it, but I probably would have some discomfort in that neonate population, mostly because of provider discomfort. In a new preview, I'd be worried about their ICP, right? Yeah. Yes, most certainly. I'm thinking about my NICU rotation, wondering why they always used VEC instead of ROC. Mm. And I, I can't think of why besides the fact that it was just around. You guys think? It might be institutional dependent. So where I did residency, we used VEC for everything. Mm. Yeah. You will find that as you train and as you experience different institutions, there may be strategies and trends that people utilize because that's what they're comfortable with. That's what's easily accessible. And so that is how it is. That makes sense. All right. This has been an excellent conversation. I feel a little bit more comfortable in dosing some of these medicines. And I think what's most helpful are the practical tips. The different clinical scenarios kind of call for certain types of agents. We'll definitely include the chart and all the typed up material that will correspond to our podcast today on our blog. Yes, this is outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, guys. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. 
Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out pedscrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>